Really glad to be here. The theme that uh, I've been uh, so excited to uh, continue to join in is the theme of give thanks. And certainly, we are living in a moment and a time where uh, the world would love to um, really essentialize Thanksgiving, not the holiday per se, but Thanksgiving, giving thanks, and make it all about what we have. In many ways, giving thanks has been commodified. It'd be based on what you have or don't have, based on the people that are in your life or the, your ability to be wealthy or have a lot of resources or maybe even have your health or have your dream job. But I am um, also convinced that one of the great gifts of our faith is that we are often reminded that much of what we should give thanks for uh, is not always visible to us. That in many ways, some of the things that should garner our most thanks uh, are not things that you can always put your hands on or always, you know, just kind of, you know, put in a box and put a bow on top of it. And in this way, uh, I believe that in an age and in a time where the world seems to be rocking uh, on its heels, that we still have the gift of faith, a faith and a gift that keeps on giving to us. So today I, I look forward to us taking a few moments to see how the scriptures uh, give us a lot of knowledge and information and, dare I say, a pathway to a greater revelation and relationship with Christ. And in that way, I hope it does evoke within us some thanksgiving. Amen. And, you know, I'll let your pastor deal with the real Thanksgiving holiday next week. Today we'll just talk about giving thanks for knowing Jesus. Uh, so in, uh, let's see, Philippians chapter number 3. Why don't you kind of hang out there with me? Now, uh, I appreciate the worship team. They uh, took pretty much a lot of my sermon and just sang it, praise God. So I, 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 this may be a real short one today. Somebody say amen, right? Uh, but but, but uh, the crux of my sermon will come from verses uh, number uh, 10, 9, 10, 11, and, and it was read in the NIV. So I'm just going to ask you to humor me. We'll start at verse number one, and I'll read from the message translation. You can certainly follow along. The message just kind of puts this in a little bit more plain language, um, but certainly uh, I think the sentiment of the word of God uh, is certainly all very similar. Uh, so Philippians chapter number three, when you have it, say, I got it. All right, y'all going to be my church back home, all right? So Get ready to give your neighbor high fives and holler and scream, roll on the floor, swing from the chandeliers, all that stuff. Y'all do that in Ben? From time to time, right? Y'all do it when the ducks are winning, right? I think, yeah. It's so funny seeing all the O's. I was like, man, I guess I am in Oregon. Uh, verse number one says, and that's about it, friends. Be glad in God. I think your version may say rejoice. And I don't remind repeating what I've written in earlier letters. This is the Apostle Paul writing to the church in Philippi. And I hope you don't mind hearing it again, for it's better safe than sorry. So here it goes. Stay clear of the barking dogs, those religious busybodies who are all bark and no bite. Anybody met anybody like that? All right. 
Hopefully not your neighbor, right? For all they're interested in is appearances, knife-happy circumcisers, I call them. For the real believers are the ones the Spirit of God leads to work away at this ministry, filling the air with Christ's praise as we do it. For we couldn't carry this off by our own efforts, and we know this, for even though we can list what many might think are impressive credentials, for you know my pedigree. This is Apostle Paul kind of giving his resume of why he's the bomb, right? I have a legitimate birth. I'm circumcised on the eighth day, an Israelite from the elite tribe of Benjamin, a strict and devout adherent to God's law, a fiery defender of the purity of my religion, even to the point of persecuting Christians. I was a meticulous observer of everything set down in God's law, the book. The very credentials these people are waving around as something special. I'm tearing them up and throwing them out with the trash. Along with everything else I used to take credit for. And why? Because of Christ. Verse number eight. Yes, all the things I once thought were so important are gone from my life compared to the high privilege of knowing Christ Jesus as my master firsthand. Everything I once thought I had going for me is insignificant dog dung. Mm-hmm. I've dumped it all in the trash so that I could embrace Christ and be embraced by him. How many know that's something to give thanks for, right? It's one thing to embrace somebody, but how many know when you get an embrace back, it makes the embrace even more enjoyable? But then he goes on to say, I didn't want some petty, inferior brand of righteousness that comes from keeping a list of rules when I could get the robust kind that comes from trusting Christ, God's righteousness. I gave all that up, that inferior stuff, so I could know Christ personally, experience his resurrection power, be a partner in his suffering, and go all the way with him to death itself. For if there was any way to get in on the resurrection from the dead, that's what I wanted. And I'm saying all these things, uh, saying that I have this all together, that I've made it, but I am on my way reaching out for Christ who has so wondrously reached out for me. Friends, don't get me wrong. By no means do I count myself an expert in all of this, but I've got my eye on the goal where God is beckoning us onward to Jesus. I'm off and running, pressing toward the mark. I'm not turning back. So let's keep focused on that goal. And those of us who want everything that God has for us, for if any of you have something else in mind, something less than total commitment, God will clear your blurred vision and you'll see it yet. For we're on the right track. Let's stay on it. I love that whole chapter. As you can see, I read the whole thing, right? It's just, I love, I love it because in many ways it makes very clear what I believe the the commitment and the occupation of every follower of Jesus must be about, and that is knowing Christ. Now, I was reading a wonderful article uh, some time ago. Rachel Evans, uh, she's a, 
uh, a, you know, evangelical blogger type person, and she wrote this article called Why Millennials Are Leaving the Church. Anyone read that article? few of you guys. All right. I'm just going to pull out an excerpt, uh, not necessarily because I, I, I think it's, it's you, know, uh, you know, measures up there with what I just read, but it's a very interesting contemporary take on what I believe at, is at stake when we're talking about knowing Christ, particularly for our generation, our contemporary moment. She says, what millennials really want from the church is not a change in style, but a change in substance. We want an end to the culture wars. We want a truce between science and faith. We want to be known for what we stand for, not what we are against. We want to ask questions that don't have predetermined answers. We want churches that emphasize an allegiance to the kingdom of God over an allegiance to a single political party or a single nation. We want our LGBT friends to feel truly welcome in our faith communities. We want to be challenged to live lives of holiness, not only when it comes to sex, but also when it comes to living simply, caring for the poor and oppressed, pursuing reconciliation, engaging in creation care, and becoming peacemakers. You can't just hand us a latte and then go about business as usual and expect us to stick around. We're not leaving the church because we don't find the cool factor there. We're leaving the church because we don't find Jesus there. Like every generation before ours and every generation after, deep down, we long for Jesus. And when I read that article for my congregation back home, and, you know, as I kind of go around and do some preaching and teaching around a lot of different uh, issues, whether it's the state of the church or the state of our culture or even our own personal discipleship, I find that what is at stake larger than anything in our contemporary moment is this notion of can we find Jesus? Where can we find Jesus? And in many respects, who can help us find and be discipled in the ways of Jesus? Now, it is a very interesting phenomenon we are in in this moment uh, of postmodern uh, kind of existence where uh, people are very slow to kind of believe that uh, anyone could be an expert on anything. Uh, I don't know if you ever heard of the jack of all trades and masters of none, right? That seems to describe our present context because many of us have been conditioned to believe that all of us can just come to the truth if we just had enough information. Mm-hmm. That now that Google is here, right, that I can actually get every one of my answers answered by just typing it into Google. That I could go to enough schools and colleges and get all the knowledge and information that I need, uh, and I don't necessarily have to look to an institution or, or, God forbid, some authority figure to help me to figure out what it is I must know about Jesus. And that part of that is really birthed out of a, 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 a real kind of uh, reality that many of the folks who seem to have authority or seem to, uh, you know, kind of posture themselves as experts of Jesus seem to talk about a Jesus that turns a lot of us off. I mean, you know, Brother Gandhi, I love Gandhi the way he said, he said, boy, Jesus, oh, I love your Jesus, but them Christians... 
He's like, God, do something about them Christians. I love Jesus, but them Christians. Anybody ever heard anybody say that to him? I, I love Jesus, but boy, that church, what's wrong with them folk over there? Right? That, that in many ways, I believe what is at stake is not Jesus. But what's at stake is we who are followers of Jesus in the community of believers. And how are we making known and plain the ways, the paths, and even the, the knowledge that Christ has made known to us? Understand, child of God, that all of us at every moment in our, our lives are either being influenced by the ways of Jesus or by the ways and sensibilities of this world. That none of us are existing in a zero gravity place where we just kind of come to, to Christ or come to these ways uh, un, untouched by uh, the assumptions that are either placed upon us or, or, or that are infused in the ways in which we have been shaped by our culture. While I was at Duke going through my master's program, I met a number of folks who were in the, semi, in the uh, Fuqua Business School. And it's very fascinating because we're talking about, you know, theology and culture. And one of them said, well, you know, in our classes, our marketing classes, they are teaching us how to make you spend money on things you don't need. I said, what you talking about, Willis? You know, I was like, man, I'm already broke. Why do I need to be spending nothing? It's like, no, no, no. Like, they, 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 they have marketing and they have all these, 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 these ways to tap into your unconscious and to influence you and I in ways that are often unknown to us. And I find this so fascinating because when we talk about how do people appropriate the ways of Christ, even we, as followers of Jesus, how do we appropriate the ways of God? How many of us can be honest and admit that in many respects, God has been mediated to us through a culture that has divided us up into boxes and categories that are not fully able to give an account of who God created us to be? So in many ways, we have these assumptions by how much money we make in, and our politics, our race, our feelings, our education. And, 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 and in many ways, this can get in the way of us being able to really know who Jesus is. And this is why I believe part of what the business of the church must be is about us taking seriously the call to know Jesus in a way that breaks down those artificial categories, if you will, and gives us a true pathway to knowledge of God through Christ. And how do we attain that knowledge? Well, Paul gives you and I an amazing kind of a paradigm, a, a, an amazing pedagogy, if you will, gives us an amazing framework that I hope is not lost upon us. Because in an American Western Christianity that would love to promote all of the, 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 the health and the wealth and all of the comfortabilities of what it means to live, Paul seems to suggest that if you want to know Christ, you got to know him through the fellowship of his suffering. That if you want to know Christ, you have to be willing to be like him in death. That if you want to know Christ, you have to be able to move in the power of his resurrection. And for me, this is what I get so excited and thankful about because we have been given 
a true way to know Christ that in many ways can call into question the very broken and crumbling systems of this world. That to know Christ is not to be the biggest and the baddest, the one with the most swag and the powerful, the one, as Lady Gaga says, is looking for all the applause. But to know Christ is to enter into that place and space where vulnerability and possibility collide. Paul Tillich, he's a German theologian, and he talks about how Knowing God, revelation of God does not happen where there is no need. And I want to submit to you today that our world has a need. And that need is an opportunity for you and I to enter the space where we can make plain the knowledge of Christ. So part of what I want to do for the next, say, 10, 15 minutes or so is give us, you and I, an opportunity to dig real deep into this passage and look a little bit more clearly how Paul talks about knowing Christ. The first thing that Paul says is, I want to know him in the fellowship of his sufferings. Everybody say sufferings. All right. Y'all said that with about as much excitement as they do in the Bay Area. Praise God. How many of us know that all of us are trying to get away from suffering? Can I say, amen. It's like, you know, this is masochistic faith you up here talking about, McBride. I'm trying to get away from this stuff. I ain't trying to run to it. But it, what does it mean when, when Paul says, I want to know him in the fellowship of his sufferings? Could it be in many ways that Paul is making a declaration about what our lives are? are often characterized whether we want it or not. That you and I can make every effort to avoid suffering, and suffering still finds our address. You can put a security dog outside of your house, and suffering will still find a way to... You can have that. You know, anyone ever have that no soliciting sign? Like, no Jehovah's Witnesses, please. No, like, we have a, but, but, but people still... That Paul, I believe, is making very plain and clear this notion that part of what it means to know Christ is to be comfortable engaging and entering into the fellowship of his suffering. Now, in other parts of Scripture, it's very interesting. It says, for us to count it all joy when you encounter trials and tribulations. And if you like me, I wish I, I could have some scissors and cut out certain parts of the Bible. Look, like, count all joy. For real? Maybe they wasn't going through what I'm going through. Because I don't count it all joy when I'm going through hardship. I don't throw a party when my bills are due. I don't throw a party when my money is funny and my change is strange. I mean, when, 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 when my body gets sick, I'm not throwing a party. I'm not counting it all joy. But what is it about the scriptures and about the ways of Jesus that declare that when we're going through, we should give thanks and count it all joy? What is it about 
the way of Jesus that declares that the fellowship of his suffering is where we can encounter a knowledge that we may not get when we're on the mountaintop. Can our suffering be redemptive? Questions that I think in many ways shudder some of us because we're taught in a culture that when things go badly, we should do everything we can to end that, not sit in that and figure out what am I to learn in this place. But I want to submit to you that if we take the life of Jesus seriously, Jesus willingly engaged in the suffering that led to his death, the scriptures say, because he was learning obedience. Now, I got to tell you, some of these things in Scripture, they just rub me the wrong way, particularly when I look at my own experience. In 1999, I was 20-something years old, and I was attending Bible college. I was a youth pastor, worship leader, doing all kind of great things for God, minding my own business, on my way to heaven, and oh, so glad. Huh, glory. But on my way home one night, I was pulled over by two police officers. These two police officers pulled me out of the car, and they physically and sexually assaulted me and they thought that I was a criminal and they, you know, threatened to beat me up and throw me in an empty field. And they did all these, these, these very wicked and sinful and evil things to me and left me as a broken young man. And I remember the conversations I was having with God. And I was like, you know, God, there are a lot of other people I know who deserve to have this happen to them, but not me. I'm a holy roller, tongue talker, praise God. On my way to heaven, why me? Anyone ever had those kind of moments in your life where you ask God, why me? Anyone? Anyone? And you know what I heard from God? And I don't, you know, don't ascribe a whole lot of things to God in my life, you know, like voices, you know, whatnot. But this question has been a continuing penetrating question for me. When I asked God, why me, I heard God say, why not you? Who are you, McBride, to believe that you can go through life without having to engage in the pain and the suffering of this world? And part of my life has really been since then, God, what does it mean to go through these trials, realizing that I'm not going through them, separated from your experience of suffering and pain, but like you came through with more power and more love and more compassion, God, now I can stand here with broken victims and with, with those who are, are experiencing all kinds of difficulties and oppression and hardship. And it is not a knowledge that I read in a book, but it is a knowledge that I have lived and experience through the redemptive power of Christ. And child of God, what I believe uh, is, is, is so critical for us to appreciate is the fellowship of his sufferings. Create a unique community of people who understand that the fallen state of the world does not exempt us as those who are in relationship with God from engaging and dealing with pain and suffering, but what it does do Relationship with Christ, knowing Christ qualifies us to use our pain and our suffering as an opportunity 
for God's healing and redemption to break into our lives. And I want to submit to you that we ought to be thankful because there are many people who suffer with no hope, with no idea of how this can and will add up to something that is not meant to destroy me. But our relationship with God and the knowledge that we have of his life shows us that even though I may have to go through, weeping endures for the night, but joy comes in the morning. Give your neighbor a high five and tell him your morning is coming. Tell him that. Encourage him. Tell him your morning is coming. The second thing or the second way that I believe that Paul says that we must know Jesus, we know him through the fellowship of his sufferings, but we also know him by becoming like him in death. Now again, this seems like a very difficult notion to understand because again, we are serving the Prince of Peace, the everlasting Father. We're serving the, the king of life, you know. We're, but, but, but how many of you know that the power that Jesus rises with, Scripture says he rose with all power in his hand, he could not skip death in order to have the power of resurrection. And I want to submit to many, if not all of us, that knowing Christ by becoming like him in his death is a wonderful opportunity for us to experience a knowledge that, as St. John Chrysostom says, persecutions and afflictions and straits, hardships ought not disturb you, but they ought to make you glad because through them we are conformed to his death. Isn't it funny that everybody wants to go to heaven, but nobody wants to die? Ain't that something? Like some of our theology is like, we believe in the second coming of Jesus, so come quickly, Lord. Because the only other way to get there is to have to leave out of this world. But isn't it something that Christ, learning obedience through the death on the cross, has created a paradigm for you and I to live in the world, being like him to his death, not necessarily all of us becoming martyrs because, understand, it is a very small number of folk in our country, our Western countries, where we have the freedom to worship God. Very few of us are going to be asked to die for our faith, but all of us will be asked to live this faith out. Very few of us are going to have to lose our lives, but all of us are going to be asked to put ourselves in a risky space and place. I call it being willing and able to live your lives sacrificially as a life poured out on the altar of God. And the question then that I love to wrestle with myself and certainly challenge my congregation, I'll challenge you today, what must I be willing to die to? so I can live for. What must I be willing to die to so I can live for?
Paul talks about in his resume of all the things he should be super proud for, all the things that give him his swag and, and, and his, his pride and, and his privilege. Paul says, I'm willing to let all that stuff go so I may know Christ. That in many ways, some of the things that we're living for are getting in the way of us knowing Christ. Me seeing the world through a racial lens can get in the way of me knowing Christ. Me seeing the world through a strictly empire and nation state lens can get in the way of me deeply knowing Christ. Me being uh, preoccupied with the size of my bank account or, or if I can get that, that house with the uh, white picket fence and the two and a half kids and the dog is sometimes can get in the way of me knowing Christ. That in order to know Christ, I have to be willing to die to some things. Because it is through the process of dying to some things that I am able to experience new life. I'm so convinced that part of what God is calling this church, the church of privilege, the American church, many of us, even in my communities where we serve in underserved communities, we have so much privilege and opportunity. And, and sometimes we can be so caught up in what we have that we can be seduced by what we don't have and not realize that everything that God has given us, we have to be willing to die to it and give it up in very concrete ways. And some of that is being able to identify ourselves, putting ourselves in the places where life seems to be absent. We do all this work with mass incarceration, realizing that since 1980, the growth of the prison population in this country has quintupled, grown by 500%, even though crime is at its lowest point in these last 30 years. Knowing that many of our loved ones, family members of all races, but overrepresented in our black and Latino communities find themselves in jails and prisons for issues of drug addiction that should often be dealt with public health solutions and not overly punitive criminal sentences, but we find that these lives are being placed in death houses. And the profits that are often fueling our local cities and municipalities and states and even our nation is, is perpetuating death. And I keep hearing the words of Paul saying, that in order to know Christ, we must become like him in his death. We must intentionally put ourselves in places where life seems to be absent. Those death places. Realizing that because we know Christ, even in those places of death, we can bring a knowledge of resurrection and hope. Howard Thurman I'd love for you to write his name down and get anything that you see him write. Just Howard Thurman. I mean, I just, just buy, you know, any books, authors you love. I mean, Philip Yancey, anything I see Philip Yancey, I just buy it, you know. Uh, 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 Ken White's, anything I see him write, I just buy it. You're welcome, Pastor Ken, right? Uh, you know, it just, just, you know, Howard Thurman is, is another person. He says like this, that God stands squarely 
on the side of those people whose backs are against the wall. God is comfortable in those places and those spaces. And the question for all of us as believers is, can we be like him? Can we conform to his death? Being in those places knowing that death does not have the final say. I want to know him. In those places. Why? Because it is in those places that we experience the power of his resurrection. I'm a fourth generation Pentecostal kid, so I am one of these Holy Ghost babies. We just believe in the Holy Ghost, praise God. We love the Holy Ghost because the Holy Ghost, the way I was taught, you can walk through fire and not be burned. Huh, glory. You can walk through the water and it won't over, overflow you. Yes, God. You can raise the dead, cast. I mean, you know, the Holy Ghost just give you all that kind of power. One of the greatest things I love about the theology of the Holy Spirit is where it says that that same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead can raise you and I. How many know that is the greatest hope of our salvation? That there is never a moment in our lives where the power of God's spirit cannot bring us back. You want to talk about a great comeback. Look at a child of God whose life has been redeemed by the power of the spirit. You want to talk about someone who can walk into any circumstance and not allow the circumstance to dictate what they believe is possible? I'm talking about someone who is experiencing the power of the resurrection through the power of God's spirit. And it is that spirit that has been made available to us. Understand that moving in the power of resurrection is a, a, a destination, a, a lifelong journey that does not have a destination uh, while we are alive, but it is fully manifested when we're on the other side. But I believe this, child of God, that if you and I can learn to move in the power of resurrection, this is what we will be characterized as. People who have lost the fear of death so we can have the courage to live God's way. Because how many of you know that the worst thing that anybody can do to me is kill my body? That's the worst thing you can do. But how many of you know that if God has the power to raise me from the dead, whew, then even that fear loses its power over how I live. One of the greatest public witnesses of the early church were not slick flyers, were not a great marketing campaign or great preaching, but you will find when you read and look at church history, that the early church just exploded during its greatest persecution. And the greatest public witness was when these followers of Jesus, these new Christians and disciples, were being hauled into the Colosseums. 
And they were being hauled into the Colosseums because they refused to renounce their faith. They were so convinced in the power of resurrection that it snatched off fear of death. So they lived so boldly that in these Colosseums of folk who did not know anything about this small sect of Christians, they would see these Christians dressed up in wedding clothes. On their way to a certain death, they would stand in the middle of the Colosseums and they would sing hymns and praises to God. And all the other gladiators and criminals and, and, and all the big fighters, they would run around. They would do everything they can to try to, you know, uh, uh, extend their life. And, and they would do everything they can to try to defeat these wild beasts and animals, lions, tigers, and bears. Oh, my. But as they stood, these Christians... All of these folks watching in the Colosseums would say, what manner of courage and valor and honor is this? And they became curious about the way of Jesus because of these group of folk who lived their lives more convinced about the power of resurrection than the fear of death. And in an age where we have become experts at killing one another, experts of exporting death and even importing more ways to die, my prayer for the church is that we will be people who are convinced and committed to knowing Jesus through the power of his resurrection. Concretely, what does this mean? This means that even in your worst moment, child of God, the power of God can raise you up. Your marriage may be on the rocks, but the power of resurrection means that your marriage is never so gone that God can't bring it back. Your children may be strung out and, and, and far from God, far from you, but the power of resurrection means that you always have hope and trust that the God who can raise us from the dead, there's never a circumstance or situation in our life that he can't raise from the dead. This makes me thankful. Because it shows me that God has made a, available to me and to you and to us a path to truly know who he is. I want to know him power of his resurrection, fellowship of his sufferings, be like him even in his death. Lord, help us to know you. Bow your heads with me as I pray for us. Never would have made it, never could have made it without you. I would have lost it all. But now I see that you've been there for me so I can say I'm stronger. I'm wiser. I'm better. Much better. When I look back over all I've been through, I realize you were the one I held on to so I can say 
I never would have made it. I never could have made it without you, God. God, I pray that we as your people, in a season of reflecting on what it means to give thanks, that we will realize that as weak we can say we're strong, as poor we can say we're rich, because of what you've done for us and what you have done for us has given us a bona fide way to know you. And it is no longer a mystery, it is no longer unknown, but through the fellowship of your sufferings and through the being made like you in death and through the power of your resurrection, you have shown us how we may attain this knowledge. I pray, God, for all of us who may find ourselves in various different places or stages of this acquisition of knowledge, of this experience. Push us, God. Push us to go beyond that which is comfortable and to find a depth and a place where you can be made known to us. And for that, God, we'll give you thanks and we'll give you glory. In the name of Jesus the Christ, we pray. Amen.